you would please open in the Bible to Matthew chapter 12 on page 817. This morning we're going to look at verses 15 to 21. Sorry, that's last week. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 32. That's on page 817. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. You can also find it printed in the bulletin on page 8, I think it is. If you would please stand. Reading from Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to open your word. Father, we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit powerfully upon us, the same spirit that moved Matthew to write these words. Illumine our hearts and give us grace that we might hear your voice, Father. Believe, obey, and rejoice. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. I want to say again, uh, happy Lent. I hope you have a blessed Lent. Over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to be looking together at uh, Matthew chapter 12, the concluding part of this long chapter. Uh, in fact, I, I believe um, it lines up very well with Lent. We'll be in Matthew 12 most of this season. Lent uh, is... Uh, uh, a season that's come to be very important to me. I spent a long time in a denomination that kept Lent. And um, so I've, I've always appreciated 
the sort of the focus of Lent on sin. It's, it's something that you can today go to church a long time without actually thinking very much about sin. Uh, it's all about self-actualization and, and fulfillment and getting all the things that you want because you're convinced God wants you to have them. And there's not a lot of time to stop and reflect it. That the God who gets us really does get us and he wants better for us. And so um, this season we'll be thinking a lot about that. The, the word Lent, by the way, comes from the old English word for spring. And it always was the weeks leading up to Easter. And uh, as, as it happens this year, that, that'll be true for us. Uh, as we move towards Holy Week, uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, will be with the church across the world and across the ages reflecting on sin and closely related to sin, mortality. We'll be thinking about death. We'll be thinking about last things So, in, in each of our lives. So, happy Lent. And I hope this will be the start of a great season for us as we listen to what Jesus has to say uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Um, this story begins with a, a very interesting healing story. It's, it's, I think, going to be a kind of illustration of the rest of the paragraph that Jesus uh, teaches about sin um, and forgiveness. Look at, at verse 22, the first few verses. Uh, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. That's Jesus, of course. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Let's pause for just a moment. Uh, It's a a brilliant story uh, with a very dramatic beginning. There's a man who is oppressed by a demon. Um, That's the way the author Matthew described it as he was moved by the Spirit. It's hard to know exactly what that looked like or what that may have meant in in that cultural context, but we know that that uh, demons do oppress. Demons use human experience. Demons interfere with our lives. Demons cause all kinds of hardship. Maybe you know a little bit about what it is like to be oppressed by demons, to be oppressed and, and to be kept from living the fulfilled Christian life um, that you are called to live. And so here's a man recorded for us in Matthew uh, chapter 12 who was, by the account of the Bible itself, was himself oppressed. So never try to convince me demons aren't real. Uh, The Bible tells us they're real. They do involve themselves in human life. And here's an example. And this demon-oppressed man uh, has a particularly dramatic story. It says he was blind and mute. Uh, the, the Greek words are tuflos and kafos. Uh, tuflos means blind, but kafos means, well, it means mute and deaf. They're connected. The, the, the connection between being unable to hear and being unable to speak, those things often go together in human experience. And so here's a man who was blind possibly both mute and deaf. And uh, this is 
uh, a person that is presented to Jesus. He is brought to Jesus. We're not told how. Maybe some loving friends, maybe family members. Who knows? But he was brought to Jesus. And in a dramatic throwaway line, all it says, all Matthew records is, he healed him. (laughs) I mean... What a, what a dramatic build-up and what a sudden, unexpected resolution. Jesus saw this man who was profoundly challenged, blind, mute, potentially deaf. Uh, he, he, was, he was as disadvantaged as you can imagine being. And Jesus saw him and he healed him. What an amazing story. And, and so uh, Matthew records, the man spoke and saw. He was, he was healed fully by Jesus. Quite a beautiful story. Very brief. Matthew has another point to make. He's already told us lots of healing stories. But he has another point to make. Beyond the supernatural power of Jesus Christ to heal, we we, we have been told that. We've been shown that many times. But he has another point to make. It says in verse 23, all the people were amazed. Everyone who was watching, the crowds who were gathered around, they were amazed. Perhaps they knew this man. Perhaps they'd seen him suffering through the difficult life he had to live. Uh, they were amazed, it said. They, they said, can this be the son of David? You see, they, were, they put two and two together. Only God can heal such profound challenges. Only God has the power to heal the blind and and those who are mute and those who have deafness. Only God can do that. And they were amazed by it. And they put it together in their own understanding of the Jewish scriptures. And they took this man to be the son of David, which is another title for the Messiah. And they began to think... Can this be the Messiah? Can this be David's promised son? It's a hopeful response. But it's not the only response. Look at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, that's one of Satan's nicknames, Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies. You sometimes hear it translated. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Isn't that staggering? They see Jesus work a wonder that they knew could really only be completely and truly performed by the power of God. That's really, in the scriptures, that's how those healings, those profound healings require the power of God. They see that. And they write it off as the work of demons, a specific demon, the prince of demons, king of the demons. So that's what they do when they see what happened to this suffering man set free. They criticize Jesus. They use it as yet more ammunition to use against him. They've already been accusing him of all kinds of things. They're already out to get him ever since Uh, Chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees have been going out. They've been conspiring against Jesus. They were determined to destroy him. And so here they have what they perceive is yet more evidence. 
He's doing all this, and he must be doing it with the power of the devil. He must be doing it with the power of Beelzebul. Well, verse 25, Jesus knows their thoughts. He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. In this illustration, Jesus simply uh, deploys logic. He simply deploys logic. You know, so often opposition to Christ, opposition to the claims of the gospel, so often it's illogical. So often it's, it's based on a negative presupposition. And that's what's, what's going on here. So Jesus simply deploys logic. He knows their hearts. He knows their thoughts. And so he makes the obvious observation that that really doesn't make any sense because Satan's out to conquer the world. Satan's God's great enemy. It makes no sense for the kingdom of Satan to be casting out the servants of Satan. It makes no sense. It's illogical. If that were true, the, ki- the kingdom of Satan would simply destroy itself. It would, it, would, it would be impossible for Satan to do what Satan is manifestly trying to do. He'd be divided against himself. You might have heard this verse quoted uh, in um, the speeches of Abraham Lincoln. He actually took this story and kind of turned it on his head. Uh, he makes a point about kingdoms. Uh, again, using just logic, he said, no kingdom divided against itself will stand. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln was talking about our country. And he said, no kingdom, no country can possibly divide against itself because it will destroy itself. Lincoln saw the logic of what Jesus said, even though he slightly misapplied it. He certainly took the logic lesson and applied it in his situation And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do. They were trying to use this uh, rhetorical, illogical tool to cast aspersions on Christ. And Jesus knew it. And he called them on it. It says in verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? See, they had a category for casting out demons. So Jesus simply said... if, uh, if I do it by Beelzebub, in whose name are they doing it? And why, why is that okay? Why, why do you look at that as acceptable? But Jesus, who has presented himself consistent with the scriptures, who has shown the love and mercy of God, who has called the people to holiness, who has called the people to himself to return to the sovereign God of Israel. Um, if Jesus does the same thing, um, how could he be criticized by the Pharisees? Now, there, there are a couple of lessons I, I'd, I'd like for us to take away from this. I, I believe they're, they're meant to be taken away from this passage. And the first thing I hope we can grab hold to, uh, on the basis of this illustration, on the basis of this whole paragraph, is that there's such a thing as forgivable sins. Such a thing as forgivable sins. Now, Jesus is talking about forgivable sins starting down uh, as he, as he, as he uh, speaks to them down in verse 31. He turns from talking about the power of overcoming deponic oppression. Verse 31, he says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. 
Now, uh, that's quite a statement. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. He's not saying that there's no such thing as sin. He's not saying that everyone's sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. He's saying that it is possible in God's supreme providence for every sin and every blasphemy to be forgiven. There is no sin. There is no blasphemy beyond God's power to forgive. He's going to go on to qualify that. But he makes this amazing statement. Every sin, every blasphemy can, will be forgiven people. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a remarkable word. Every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven people. All those who are going to go on to fit into what Jesus is talking about have the confidence that every single sin, every single blasphemy with one qualification can be forgiven God by God. Every single one. Um, I don't know about you. I've, I've got a long list of sins in my life. And it is a source of great comfort to me to know that all of them are forgivable. They're all forgivable. All the knuckle-headed things I've done in my 65 years, they're all forgivable. As a matter of fact, think about the worst sins you can possibly imagine. The, the acts of inhumanity, the violence, the, the lustfulness, all the behaviors, the long list of sins. We just did the Ten Commandments. We recounted the Ten Commandments. We prayed our way through the Ten Commandments. By the way, I think that's the way best to approach the Ten Commandments, to pray our way through them, not to beat one another up with them, but to pray our way through them. Anyway, uh, all those sins that are listed in the Ten Commandments, all those things we're told not to do, and all the things that flow logically from them constitute sin. All of those sins, according to Jesus, except for one, are forgivable. That is a source of great encouragement to me. And here at the beginning of Lent 2024, I hope it will be a source of great comfort and encouragement to you. I frequently have conversations with people uh, who I pastor or who I know, people I care about, who will say, I'm really having a bad week. I'm having a bad month. I'm not sure that God's going to forgive me. I'm not sure God's going to allow me to be a part of his church, to be a part of his family. I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed. I feel overwhelmed. I have that conversation a lot of times with a lot of different people. Well, this verse answers that concern. Jesus in this passage, reassures us that whatever our sins may be, with one exception, whatever our sins may be, all of it, all of it is forgivable. In fact, in fact, all of it is part of our ongoing life of sanctification. The, the picture that Jesus uses here in uh, verse 28, uh, sorry, verse 29 How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Uh, 
the way Jesus is describing sin is that uh, Jesus has to overcome and does overcome the strong man. That is the basis of forgiveness. It is not our gritting our teeth and our making ourselves better people. I think sometimes we reduce sanctification to that. It's, boy, I'd better grit my teeth. I better memorize some more Bible verses, which is a great thing to do. But I'm going to, in my own power, overcome sin. Well, brothers and sisters, we do battle with a strong man. And there is no way to overcome that strong man unless someone overcomes him first. Jesus on the cross is the one person who overcame that strong man, who who cast that strong man from his place of powerful authority. He still annoys us and irritates us. He's still a lot stronger than we are. But Jesus has overcome the strong man. And so all of our sins, all the things we do, all the mistakes we make, all the failures, the word for sin really means failure, missing the mark. It's, it's, it's a failure. It's, it's not doing sufficiently what we're called to do, even if we're trying. We're trying to hit the mark, but we miss the mark. Well, Jesus has dealt with all of that. He has overcome the strong man. And now, in Jesus, all of our sins will be forgiven. All of our sins will be forgiven. All of our blasphemy, all the thoughts we have, all the, all the words we say, in Christ are forgivable. How are they forgivable? Well, they're forgivable in the way we see in this healing story. See, this man was helpless. He was, he was blind. He was, he was mute, possibly deaf. He was utterly helpless. But Jesus healed him. And that's the way Jesus is sanctifying you and me. It's not always instantaneous. In my experience, it's very, very seldomly instantaneous. It's an ongoing process of sanctification. It's Jesus who has overcome the strong man who is now teaching us and training us and reorienting us and healing us. Making us more like himself. It's a lifelong, ongoing process of calling out to Jesus, stumbling, running back to Jesus, experiencing God's new grace in Christ, stumbling again, running back to Jesus. 65 years old, that's what I've experienced my whole life. It's, it's the kind of thing that Martin Luther called the life of repentance. It's not something we do once and forget about. No, it's, it's a, a life of running back to Jesus who has overcome the power of the evil one. It's, it's running back to him. It's humbly confessing to him. Uh, we'll be confessing a lot this season. We'll be having the opportunity to reflect on our sin a lot this season. And it's always, always something we need to do. You know, it's not something you confess once and forget about. No, we run back to Jesus every time we stumble. Augustine called the tendency to sin concupiscence. It's this tendency to sin. It's part of original sin. Uh, The reformers were very insistent on this, that that 
proneness to sin is actually part of our sin nature. It's part of our sin nature. We're, we're prone to sin. And God knows that about us. It's no surprise to Him. God knows that because of our sin nature, we are prone to stumbling. He knows that. He knows that when we first call out to Him. He knows that we're prone to stumble, that we're prone to, to, to sin, that we, we will miss the mark. We will miss the mark a lot. And that's the Christian life. That's, that's, that's why we have a Lent every year. And it's why we confess our sins every Sunday. It's because it's always true. It's not true yesterday and it's not true today. It's always true. We are always sinners in need of God's ongoing saving power where he forgives our sins. And when, like this demon-oppressed man, we come to Jesus... As we call out to him, Jesus heals us. He, he, he walks with us in this life of unfolding healing. Made right once and for all. Justified once and for all. Part of his family once and for all. But the process of becoming like him is lifelong. It is lifelong. All sins are forgivable, brothers and sisters. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. Confess it to the Lord, and it is forgivable. Praise God for that. What an what a th- important thing to remember as we launch a season of reflection on sin. But Jesus has a very important qualification. If you look at the end of this paragraph... The second half of verse 31. Jesus begins by saying, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will will be forgiven people. Add a couple of spiritual exclamation points because it's absolutely true. But, but he says, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now hold on a minute, Jesus. You just got my heart racing. All sins, all blasphemies, those are forgivable. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What does Jesus mean? Well, this is, this is a chestnut of a theological, pastoral question. Uh, I've simply lost count of the number of times I've had the chance personally to reflect on these verses and personally to pastor people who wrestle with these verses. Uh, part of the problem is there's been a lot of speculation about these verses. What does Jesus mean? What is the unforgivable sin? What is what is sometimes called the unpardonable sin? What is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Uh, Don't do this, but if you Google something like that, what is the unforgivable sin? Brace yourself. Because there's no end of speculation in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of uh, amateur theologians. What is the unforgivable sin? Uh, At one time it was said that the unforgivable sin was, was suicide. At one time it was said to be murder. Uh, I've actually heard it argued fairly recently that the unforgivable sin is some sort of sexual sin, homosexuality or homosexual behavior, that that's so contrary to God's word that it's outside the area of forgiveness. But I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching us here. I'm pretty sure of it because it's in a context. 
It's actually in a context. It's not a, a, a verse floating out in space. You know, all too often we have these verses and we, we've memorized them or we've heard a lesson on them and we remember the verse, we forget the context. So often we, we just focus on someone's reading of a, of a verse without any reflection on the verses before it and after it. Well, let's not do that. So what is the context? What is, what is the sinful behavior that prompts Jesus to say this? Well, a couple of things. The blind and mute man and the crowd who were amazed at his healing sort of stand out as examples of those who experience grace, who experience the possibility and ultimately the reality of forgiveness. The man was healed. That's why it's written down in the Bible for us. It matters that he was healed. But there was another group of people who actually rejected what Jesus had to say, refused to humble themselves before him, refused to repent, refused to confess, refused to acknowledge him, I want to suggest to you, and I'm not alone in this, the one unforgivable sin is to refuse to acknowledge the need for forgiveness. It's the arrogant insistence that I don't need Jesus. I don't need God's mercy. I don't need healing. And what happens when you see the attitude It hardens over time and it gets uglier and uglier and more and more hateful. It is resistant to Jesus. It comes to hate Jesus. And Jesus says, that is actually sinning against the Holy Spirit. That's a blasphemy against the Spirit. Because why? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings us to Christ. It is the Spirit that makes it possible for us to acknowledge Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that as good Reformed Christians. Nobody calls out to Jesus by himself. The Spirit empowers us to call out to Jesus. Well, the unforgivable sin, which is shown in the behavior of these Pharisees, was to deny that, to reject that, to to refuse to submit to Christ, to refuse to submit to the work of the Spirit drawing us to Jesus, to deny that, and to deny it to others. See, that was one of the things they were doing. Not only were they doing it for themselves, they were doing it to other people. You know, I mentioned those goofy websites. I, I don't don't. Even, don't strongly encourage you to look them up. But if you look them up, as I imagine one or two of you already have, uh, there, there are all kinds of indications that the, the, the people who organize the websites, the people who want to teach other people to deny Jesus, to deny the work of the Spirit, that, brothers and sisters, that is unforgivable. When it is a hard heart against Christ, a refusal to repent, that is unforgivable. Over time, 
So our hearts are hardened. It's unforgivable. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon's one of my favorite preachers. And he actually wrestled with this idea a lot himself. He actually talks about how he wrestled with the idea of blasphemous thoughts. He said, I have blasphemous thoughts all the time. Now, as a preacher, I find it comforting that a great man of God like Charles Spurgeon can say, I struggle with this. I've stumbled. I've had blasphemous thoughts. I know what he's talking about. And, and Spurgeon said, fighting blasphemous thoughts by yourself is like trying to fight mosquitoes with a sword. It's, it's not doable by ourselves because we're against a strong man and we're against lots and lots and lots of little demonic oppressive spirits that are attacking us. And uh, so uh, Spurgeon said, don't, don't so focus on, on that aspect of the situation. Focus instead on going back to Christ, calling out to Christ, turning to Christ. And that I've found in my life, I hope you will agree, that if we turn back to Jesus, as, as we turn back to Jesus, we will experience forgiveness. And, and I believe every time we do that, we experience a, a tiny increase in our strength that we've learned from Christ, that Christ has given us. Sometimes it comes in big leaps forward. Often it comes in baby steps. But it's Jesus giving us power to resist the thoughts, the behaviors, the blasphemous things we say or think. It is the power of Christ in us, conforming us to Jesus. And he's going to have a lot to say about this next Sunday when we look at the next little chunk of the Bible. Because he turns directly from talking about the forgivable sin, the unforgivable sin. He turns directly from that to talking about something uh, that is related to him and being connected to him. What Spurgeon said before I forget, he says, Whatever the unpardonable sin may be, whatever it is, there is one thing that is sure that no man who feels his need of Christ and sincerely desires to be saved can have committed that sin. That's a very comforting word for those of us who've wrestled with that idea. You can't really confess your sins and desire to be saved and to, to know the need of Christ and to recognize that. You cannot do that and reject the Holy Spirit. Can't do that. I agree with Spurgeon completely. And Spurgeon, of course, wasn't the only one. In fact, if you look at the Westminster Confession, which is always a good thing to do, we see this description of, of the repentant life, the turning to Jesus, and that's where we find our hope. That's where we find ultimately our confidence. That's how ultimately you and I can face sin square on. We don't deny it. We don't hide from it. We face it square on. And we'll be doing that this Lent. We face it square, square on because we know in Christ we have been empowered to overcome that sin and we are forgiven that sin. We're forgiven as we wrestle with that sin. We're forgiven as we seek to overcome that sin. We are forgiven. Jesus Christ himself has told us we are forgiven. So we can lean into Jesus. We can run to Jesus. 
over and over and over and over and over and over again, all our lives, running to Jesus, confessing our sin to Jesus, seeking to grow, sometimes in baby steps, into his likeness. Well, I hope this Lent will have the chance to think about that, to think about the reality of sin, to think about the reality of death, and to call out together to the Lord. If you ever want to talk about these things, if something I've said makes no sense to you, or if you've wrestled with this particular issue, let me tell you, I said I've talked about it a lot. I am eager to talk to anybody who's wrestling with that. I I want to talk to people who wrestle with that specific thing. Let me know. Let me know. I'd love to help think your way through that and help us all to better understand what Jesus has done for us.